How you doing, everybody? This is Dr. Bart Two, your host of Pill Talk Podcast, your daily dose of medicine to give you something needed so that you can be inspired, motivated to live at your full potential. Today, I have a special guest on, Dr. Lee Ann Dooley, a psychiatrist out there in Georgia. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking your time out today. No problem. All right. So let's jump into it. Uh, let's get a little bit of background about you and how did you get started into your career field? Okay. So I'm actually from a really small town in Arkansas. It's called Arkadelphia, Arkansas. So it is a real place. Um, and so I knew from a pretty early age that I wanted to be, um, as far as my career goals, something in science. So whether it was a scientist when I was little, researcher, um, and then as I got older, I definitely got more interested in the life sciences. So after I graduated from high school, I majored in biology. Um, and um, at different points during that process, uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be, again, like in life sciences and medicine or researcher. And I think what pushed me to medicine is that I um, am definitely a more interactive person. And I think like the human contact more so. I did a couple of research kind of internships um, in undergrad and I just did, I, I knew I wasn't gonna be a bench scientist, that that didn't fit me as well. And so um, basically that's what pushed me into medicine. I will tell you that I'm the first person in my family to go to medical school. And in my small town, I didn't know very many physicians, definitely no black or brown physicians. Um, I remember when we actually got a black pharmacist and it was like a really big deal to us to have a person like with that profession in our town because we just didn't have it. Um, so I made a lot of missteps uh, along the way. For example, I didn't realize you were supposed to take like your MCAT in your junior year. So when you graduate, you can go to medical school in your senior year. I just missed that point. So I, I didn't take it. I took it in my senior year. So I was like out of college a whole year trying to work and find something to do, you know, between med, um, graduating and med school. So I think just kind of some of those challenges, not having a person um, or really like a community to really talk to about the process, kind of just figured it out on my own. So in some ways, it's really a miracle that I, that I made it to uh, med school. So um but I majored in med school, and so I went to the University of Arkansas for medical sciences. It's in Little Rock, Arkansas. So um, that's where I went to medical school. So that was four years. And then after that, I matched into psychiatry. And when I went to med school, I always envisioned myself as an OBGYN. And then that's like all I ever thought I wanted to do. And then you get there, and once you do these rotations, I was like, uh-uh. You know, um, and part of it was because I think, you know, your personalities kind of take you to where you fit well. And for um, for me, OBGYNs are really surgeons. I mean, at the core of what they do, they really are procedure and sur surgery surgeons. And I realized like, I'm not a surgeon. You know, I love women, I like women's health, but I knew I could never make it through that part of being a, a surgeon. It just didn't fit me very well. Um, and I had a psychiatry rotation and I really liked it. And, um, and we can maybe go into this a little bit more, but a lot of people, when we did our psych rotation, they were really afraid of the mental health patients um, because where we train a lot, we see people who have the most severe issues. 
So a lot of people were scared, frankly, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't afraid. So I think that, um, and also just personal family history of people with severe mental illness kind of drew me to the specialty as well. Oh, all right. All right. It's a lot that we can break down in there, but, um, just want to start by saying that's, that you're a fearless person, <laughs> never giving <laughs> up. I appreciate that. Um, your story sounds very similar to mine because I'm from a small town in Georgetown, South Carolina, where okay. uh, I don't think nobody ever saw a black doctor. <laughs> so I was one of the first two in my family to go to um, undergrad and then took it to the next level and go to a doctoral program as well. And um, now I'm still calling my friends today. They're like, yo, you still the first black doctor I've ever met or talked to. I'm like, man. That's crazy, but um. And I don't know if, if like if your case is similar to mine, but it's like you're going to school for the whole community. Like my whole community felt like they went to med school. You know, <laughs> they really did. I mean, people in Walmart, like my church, people from high school, like people were so proud of me. You know, and to this very day, you know, people are just like so proud because I'm the only black doctor that a lot of them know. You know, so that went through the process. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a challenge. Yeah, it, it is, but I am happy. I know you're probably happy to be that, that um, I say the guiding light to let everyone know coming from this place, this small town, anyone can do it. I had the same opportunities as you. And just all you have to do is just apply yourself. And like you said, uh, don't give up. Don't be afraid to fail because uh, just like you, I didn't, I don't know if you had one or not, but I didn't have a mentor to show me what steps to take. So. Mm -hmm. I was basically did the same thing. I had to set out a year um, after I graduated undergrad. I had to set out a year okay. before so I you got know. into pharmacy school. So you <laughs> the story sounds thing. very similar. Right. You're just kind of figuring it out as you go. And like once I got to med school too, it was interesting to see because I there's a lot of, you know, children, uh, not children, you know, people there who have parents who are professionals, like they're doctors, they're attorneys. And you hear, man, they know about like the courses and the prep classes. And I'm talking about they have been set up to get to that point. And I really do feel like it's really in some ways a miracle that I got through the whole process with like the limited resources that I did have, you know, thinking back on it compared mm -hmm. to what other people had. It really is kind of a miracle that it worked, that it worked out. Mm -hmm. You just got to overstep other boundaries other people didn't have to just make it and then probably surpassing those people that was already kind of groomed into it. and they're looking at you like how are you doing this you're like determination that's it like you said you got the community on your shoulders you got your neighborhood on your back it's like I'm not if I stop or if I let myself down I let everybody else down so just pushing through What's up, everybody? Let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Bartu Wilson, the host of Pill Talk Podcast. With Pill Talk, we are empowering the next generation of medical providers and professionals. Through my conversations with other top medical providers, my audience get an inside look at what it takes to make it to their level and how they're providing excellent service for their patients. If you're pursuing a career in the medical field, join me on Pill Talk to get inspired by empowered leaders, empowering the next generation of leaders in the medical field. We are the leaders of tomorrow. We are the leaders of now. So join me every Monday at 6 p.m. as I release a new episode talking with empowered leaders who want to share advice, 
coach, and network with you. So, become an empowered leader with Peel Talk Podcast. Peel Talk Podcast is not just your regular podcast, it's your medicine. The daily dose you need to educate, motivate, and aspire to live at your full potential. So, come on down and become an empowered leader and start to dream bigger with Peel Talk. And while I got your attention, make sure you go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel and support the podcast by becoming an active listener. And if you like becoming a power leader, bye. Yeah, and that's um, definitely, I think, like my process. And so I got to the end of med school and I was thinking about what I wanted to go, you know, I guess what I go into. And psychiatry was a really good fit. I actually um, matched um, at a program in Indiana. So if you're doing general psychiatry, the residency or training program is four years. So there's four years of medical school, and then there's four years of psychiatry training. So I went to Indiana for that, and that was definitely an interesting experience. I had actually never lived away from Arkansas, so not for like an ex- any kind of extended you know period of time. So there was a little bit of culture shock. I mean, you would think maybe from like the South to Midwest, it wouldn't be, but it, it was. Um, and I think also, and you're from South Carolina, so you're from the South, you can feel me on this. There's kind of like a, there's like folksy racism, like people just kind of know, you know, like you go over here, you be over here, right? People got the Confederate flag. We're just used to it. And I think it was also one of the first times I really confronted that in like an institutional way, in a way that I just had. And like in art, where I grew up, it's, it's pretty open. I mean, nobody's calling you like, you know, the N-word day to day or something, but it's just, you kind of know, we, we kind of know where the places are. Like, we know what the boundaries are. And I think being in the Midwest where it's, it's not so overt, that was really the first time I think I, like, confronted that. So I think kind of the challenge of never living away from home and then confronting those barriers in a different way made the program challenging. Not the training itself necessarily, but it made, like, the adjustment to that challenging, to my professional kind of career kind of challenging. Okay, I understand that. I understand that. So, uh, one of the things is you said um, when you started your training to be a psychiatrist, um, everyone else or a lot of people in the classes were a little afraid of the patients. What is the what is something that you had that made you not afraid? Or like, what was something, some information or willpower that made you kept going with it? It's a good. That's a good point. So. Um, when I was in medical school, which is when we're doing those rotations, is when uh, people would kind of talk about being, you know, afraid. And for me, I guess I have this internal belief that really mental health conditions really are like other conditions. And, you know, people are really suffering. And so I guess part of it was two things. There was the data that, you know, that really shows that people with mental illness aren't more dangerous than other people. So that's just what the facts show. So I feel like I have that info. And then... I'm just really comfortable with people who are, who are different, you know, and if you get into the mental health field, you'll realize there's a lot of people in the field, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, who are also kind of quirky and kind of different. And I think they're drawn to it because, you know, they're, they're different. So um, the profession is very colorful. I'll say that. Um, but I guess that's part of it too. It's like, I, I actually, when people, let's say they talk to themselves, I'm like, okay, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily something to be like frightened about just because people are, you know, responding to internal stimuli that they might have or something like that. So I think it was those two things. One was just the data 
the information that we were learning. And then two, just like, I have a lot of tolerance for a lot of different kind of behavior. And maybe that's just like my personality type. Okay, great, great, great. Um, so as a psychiatrist, what are like the roles and responsibilities that you have day-to-day uh, -day in? Can you uh, talk about that? Sure. Um, and it really can vary. So at the core of being a psychiatrist, one of the primary things that I do in my work, uh, let me just kind of describe where I work. So I work for the Veterans Administration. So I um, am actually a full-time virtual provider. So I'm physically in Metro Atlanta, but the veterans I care for are in um, another part of Georgia, a couple hours away. And what I basically do is I do what we call medication management. So I prescribe medications to treat mental health disorders. I also do, I would say like so what we call supportive psychotherapy, um, which are just kind of a certain set of interventions to kind of um, like more generally help people to their support their goals. Um, and so I think for an, what I am technically an outpatient psychiatrist, but I do provide care virtually. And this is a fairly new position for me. So I started this new role in January. So before that, I had what we would say more traditionally, like a face, the face in the office. But um, I started this new position in January. Um, you know, some psychiatrists are definitely more involved with the psychotherapy piece, and they may do more of that than the medication management. Um, also within psychiatry, there are, there are some procedures. So if people have ever heard of ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, psychiatrists, that's a procedure that they do. There's TMS, which is basically a treatment for depression that involves a really strong magnet. That's also a procedure that psychiatrists do. So for the most part, psychiatrists are going to be doing medication management, but there really is kind of a range and depending on what setting you're in to what other duties you might be doing. Okay. Okay. That's uh, some good information there. So um, how do you, if you can, can you go down an example of how you've impacted a patient's life from the beginning to the end, like they was in this state of mind and then after meeting with you once or twice or for how many sessions, how did they improve? Yeah, that's a good question. So I will say that as a psychiatrist, the the types of mental illness that I'm seeing are generally pretty severe. So um, let's say a, a person who has depression or uh, maybe anxiety that's more, I'm gonna say like mild to moderate, might be managed by a primary care. So um, most of the people I'm seeing is gonna be more of a long-term um, kind of situation. So I'm just gonna um, describe one a patient of mine I had who um, had a psychotic disorder. So a psychotic disorder basically involves a disruption in either your perception of reality. So you might hear voices or see or hear things, or it could be a disruption in your thought process. So how you think or how you speak. So these are, you know, typically when we think of like schizophrenia, those kind of things. So um, I had a person who came to me who had um, schizophrenia and he also had a history of having a pituitary tumor, which, um, kind of sits at the base of your brain. And as you know, as a physician, right, and a psychiatrist, this is like a little more of a complicated case that I would have. So um, unfortunately, he had a surgery that didn't go well, and it resulted in him missing um, part of his, uh, really part of his skull that was missing, um, and part of the brain that was missing. So typically that surgery doesn't the way they do it wouldn't involve that. So he has mental health issues. He has um, this kind of history of a, a tumor and this kind of surgery that did go well. And in some ways left him with like a traumatic brain. 
situation. Um, and also he had a history of violence. So I know I mentioned earlier that statistically people with mental illness are not violent compared to other people, but this person actually did have that history. So he had gotten off his medication and he had gotten psychotic and he actually killed his spouse. So he had went to prison for like 10 years um, and had um, due to that. So he had served his time and I was kind of seeing him, you know, several years after he had gotten out and remarried and was back on his meds and everything. So part of the issue that came up is over time, he, um, the medications just didn't seem like they worked as well. So for me, there really is that, there's like an intersection here, right? There, I have a patient who is a rare case where off of his medication, he, he did, you know, commit a crime. You know, so that's kind of unusual. And we're kind of looking at the process of kind of weaning this and trying to find something new without having the emergence of symptoms or any kind of violent behaviors. And so um, basically like with him, we went through a process where we kind of took him off of those. And um, I had the help of some other people on my team to kind of help me monitor what was happening. So if we started to see these symptoms come back, we would like warn his wife or, you know, have like a safety plan basically. So we got him off of those safely and got him onto the next medication safely without any incidents. So that would be like a kind of more complicated case that I might see a person who has the intersection of maybe, you know, mental health, medical issue, and then they're kind of social, psychosocial like kind of situations. Um, Another very recent case I saw this week is um, I have a, a pregnant woman. Being in the VA, we don't see a ton of pregnant women, but she actually a pregnant woman with a history of substance abuse. So um, a person who's on opiates, and as you know, the opiate crisis is a really huge issue. So, you know, um, so the person has that, the person has chronic pain, which is kind of driving the opiate issue. And the person has really severe mental illness, including um, like self-injurious behavior. So um, this is a person that basically has come into a program that I manage and we've worked to start her on a medication-assisted treatment for opiate use disorder. Um, I guess the outcome of that is to be determined, but that will also be a pretty complicated case. So a person with mental health, with substance abuse issues, who's pregnant, you know, that gives us limitations for things we can prescribe and all other kind of issues. So that's kind of more where the patient population that I see as opposed to, you know, like maybe more simple anxiety or depression. Usually there's multiple layers of things that are going on. Okay, okay. What's up, everybody? Let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Bartu Wilson. I'm a pharmacist that was featured in one of the most prestigious publications, Marquis Who's Who in 2021, as a top medical professional of the world because of my impact through medication therapy management, outreach programs, and networking. I started my own podcast, Pill Talk Podcast, to sit down and talk with other top medical professionals about their journey. Some of the topics that we cover in our conversations are their career path choice, education level needed to practice in their career field, and most importantly, how they're impacting the lives of the patients that they see daily. So, I would like for you to join me every Monday at 6 p.m as I release new episodes so you can learn about the different medical fields from the top professionals themselves. I just want to let you know that Pill Talk Podcast is just not a podcast, it's your medicine. The daily dose you need to educate, motivate, and aspire to live at your full potential. So become an empowered leader, 
and start to dream bigger with Pill Talk Podcast. So, I want you to go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel and support the podcast by becoming an active listener and purchasing some merchandise. Thank you. With um, having to deal with these patients uh, that's at the more severe end of um, the psychiatry, uh, how are you able to not bring that, I won't say energy, but that drama from the workplace back home? Yeah, that is a really a good question. So I think some of it is definitely the training. So if you go to a really good training program, they will help you, A, identify maybe underlying resolved, I'm just going to say issues. That could be a lot of different things you might have to help you process through that. So when you come across things that might trigger you from your childhood issues or something that you, you've you already kind of processed that. And then it really is a skill. When people ask me that, I'm like, it's a skill. It's a skill to learn how to have that kind of emotional boundary with your with this kind of work and, you know, with your home. And, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. You know, there's going to be cases sometimes that just really touch me or I just identify with, um, you know, particularly because I do work with a lot of young men and as you know, just different things in society that have been going on and, you know, to see how sometimes particularly black and brown veterans are treated in the system as it relates to mental illness and their treatment and options and things like that. Like, I can't be divorced from it. Like, I have personal feelings about that. And, you know, so sometimes it's hard to have that balance. But I'll be honest, most of the time, I can be totally in the moment, you know, empathizing with the patient, supporting the patient. And when I go to the next patient, it's like, I go to the next person. Like, I'm not taking it even to the next hour. But that, to me, is the training. Um, that kind of helps you learn how to do that skill to kind of really not compartmentalize because when I'm with someone, I'm really with them. Mm -hmm. I'm not disconnected from them. But when I move on, it's like emotionally I've moved on. Yeah. Um, One thing you said was um, in your training, they taught you how to deal with your own trauma as a child or in your, uh, oh, whatever happened to you previously in the past. So that's something that every schooling does or that's just something that you came across while in school and was able to deal with? So when I was in my residency training, there's like two layers to it. So one layer is the program that I trained in. They really encourage you to get your own personal psychotherapy. So there's like that part because we're all human and some of us really do come to our to this work with, you know, significant trauma or, you know, interpersonal issues. Um, so there's that. And then there's the process of your supervision. And so pretty much every rotation I was on, I had weekly, you know, sometimes twice a week supervision where we go over cases, whether it's your medication management cases, whether it's your psychotherapy cases. A lot of people don't know, but there are programs like the one I went to where even though we're physicians, we're psychiatrists, we did a lot of psychotherapy. And, you know, seeing someone once a week for two or three years, like in psychotherapy, you'd be amazed at how much it brings up for you. You learn how like uh, tolerant you are, you learn how patient you are, because if you can imagine, it's hard for people to change. And I've had people where I've come every week for a year, we had the same conversation. <laughs> you know, and you, at some point, again, you, you, you learn like, oh, okay, this is for me. That's why I have mad respect for people who do therapy like as their primary job, 
because it's that way sometimes because it takes that long for people to change and have insight. So, um, but that helps you learn. So recording your sessions, you know, sometimes we'll play the sessions with your supervisor and they'll give you very direct um, feedback. Sometimes we have programs where like the, um, the, and the patient knows, but you're observed, but as you're actually doing the session, the, your supervisor and maybe other residents are also like observing you. And so they see you actually in real time and your reactions, your body language, you know, all of that stuff. So that's the part. So there's two parts. There's, they may really encourage you to get your personal psychotherapy, but it's the supervision. I mean, that's the part that I think, depending on what program you're in, it can make or break how well you kind of learn that process. Great, great, great. Mm -hmm. um, during COVID, I know this was tough as well. And then with this, so how was you able to have a work-life balance um, doing both of these things, dealing with COVID and working virtually with the patients? I mean, I'll have to be honest, I did not like virtual when it first started. I did not like it at all. I, I saw patients face-to-face up until early April, you know, before things really shut down last year. So that's pretty a lot longer than a lot of other people did. But I grew to really embrace it. Initially, where I worked at my former employer, we were doing virtual, but it was from the office. So in some ways, it was still helpful to have the balance because I left the house and then I came home. You know, there was a physical barrier. Now I actually work from home. So I'm at home working and then this is where I live. So um, Part of what I've done is I definitely have a designated place in the house where I see the patients and do my work in the office. That's helped. Um, and I think in general work, and it can be a challenge. I'm not going to say it has honestly been a challenge for me. My husband helps me a lot in that way. He's a psychiatrist also, and he actually is really good about his boundaries with like work. And so he's like, you know, this, no, this is, we're shutting it down. Like we're, we're not, we're not doing work stuff, but we're not talking about work stuff right now, you know? And so he's, I think also has really helped me kind of learn how to do that and not feel guilty or like there's one more thing to do. Cause as you know, in healthcare, it's always one more thing to do. We ain't always. never going to finish. It's one, you know, with one more prescription, one more patient to call. And so um, I think to me, work-life balance is a practice. It's uh, like today before this podcast, I got done working a little bit later than I wanted to, but we have a treadmill. I was like, I'm gonna still get on there for 30 minutes, even if I just do that. So for me, it's a daily practice. You know, for me, I try to have a daily, some kind of meditation practice, um, like kind of centering. I try to have a daily movement practice, whether it's walking or lifting weights or something like that. Um, but for me, the, the key to work-life balance is to make it a daily practice. And it's not when you, just when you go on vacation. It's what you do, like, every day. And that's really good. Then think about it like that. But, yeah, just it's a daily practice. Stop everything. Like, just put it away. Because, like you said, in, in the medical field, it's always one thing to do. Um, I know one tip that a lot of people have been telling me doing this is uh, you should have two phones. Oh, okay. Phone and your personal phone. And I know from this point forward, I will start having two phones mm -hmm. just for that reason to be able to like cut it off and not have to deal with. I have two phones. I do. I have a work sale and I have my personal sale, just so you know. So that's a good tip. Yeah, yeah. I definitely gotta gotta get on that. Um, so you're doing great in your career, you're making an impact in your patients' lives. What do you see your next steps or career goals 
So I'm actually um, probably maybe in the hopefully I have like a five year plan and how I think about things, but I am looking to shift out of being in clinical medicine as my primary like work. So I'm in the process of getting a master's degree in public health at Georgia State. So um, hopefully if everything goes well, I'll graduate this December. So I'm very close to finishing okay. and I've been studying health policy and management. You know, one thing particularly being in like the large bureaucracy and federal government that I'm in, what I learned is that there are a lot of people who are making decisions about how we as like clinicians directly practice. And a lot of them have no experience actually doing it. And I say you got to have experience to do everything or make policy, but it can be really helpful to actually have some experience like providing care and giving education to patients and process in processes. So that's part of what motivated me to go back to get the MPH and to really focus on health policy and management. And so for me, my next steps will be, um, if everything goes to plan, uh, kind of transitioning out of clinical medicine primarily. I, I want to keep some of it because I feel like once you leave clinical medicine, you kind of, you're not abreast of things, but not as my primary job, whether that's going to CDC or public health um, more specifically, um, I'm, I'm not sure just yet. So, but that's kind of my next steps is to uh, likely transition out of clinical medicine full time. Okay, okay. Well, I hope that you graduate on time in December and everything goes well and you can take these steps and move on with your career and, and advancement. Um, so if anybody wants to get in contact with you get some actual any questions about psychiatry uh can you give them your instagram handles if you have a website let them know your website um and all of that sure um so um my website is drleeannedooley.com so pretty easy to find there um on instagram i'm real deal dog dooley and i'm real deal dog dooley on tiktok and also on uh, youtube and on facebook i'm lee and dooley md so certainly Amduli, if you search that on Google, you'll connect to one of some of those platforms at least, but that's where you can find me. All right. Great. Great. So I just want to say again, thank you for coming on Peel Talk Podcast. This was a great episode. Learned a lot about psychiatry and all what you do and to help your patients at the VA. So really appreciate you for coming on. Yes. And thank you for having me. No problem.